Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without declaring, Ich bin ein Berliner. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox, who will kill a man for an FPP2 mask. <laughs> so Simon, why all the murder? <laughs> yeah, this is suddenly pivoting to a true crime podcast. Uh, and I, <laughs> I am the subject matter. When I saw the announcement that, of course, Bavaria, our minister, Herr Söder, has introduced the new legislation that as of Monday, FFP spy masks will be needed for uh, shopping and public transport as well. I don't use public transport at the moment because I yeah, I don't have to travel to work anymore. So that sort of makes that easy. And I live in walking distance of most things I need. But of course, yeah, shopping mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. something I'm going to have to do. So I went straight on to our, our worldwide marketplace of Amazon uh, and managed to find myself some that weren't massive marked up yet i've seen a lot of reports online of markups happening very very quickly so yeah i mean i'm not happy with how much i've had to spend it would be nice if it was covered by our insurance for example the krankenkasse could really step up and fix that problem but yeah i've now got enough to do shopping for the next two months i, g- I get it okay. right anything that's going to make us safer i'm i'm into uh, looking at what's happening in britain and looking at what's happening in germany the numbers in both countries aren't are, are in no way comparable to where we were say in the first lockdown and, and But I do feel like there's moderate amount of clarity in comparison to, say, announcements that you've seen or, or backtracking that you've seen in the UK. Not that I don't want to get into a one's doing it better than the other debate because I don't think either of them are doing well or anyone's really doing great. But when I heard the announcement, I was my first thought was, how do you even enforce this? How do you pay for it? It just seems so badly thought out as a policy. And I tweeted about it. And as soon as I tweeted about it, I was like, oh, maybe I don't want to talk about it because you're negativity can can bleed into tacit support for for some of the more extreme viewpoints about lockdown and it's certainly not the case that i'm against lockdown or wearing masks or anything like that just in this particular instance i can only see people in in lower on lower incomes facing the the penalties this was definitely my first thought is i didn't really know too much about where i could guarantee a, a, a large amount of these to be available we live above a travel agent that advertises masks but they've been basically closed since march and we know the guy but he's not open on a regular basis enough to say okay yeah we can definitely get from him and we have one pharmacy in our neighborhood that yeah. must serve at least a thousand people and there's an old people's home etc so yeah like i was i don't think that our pharmacy is going to have enough stock uh, to really supply our neighborhood but yeah as you rightly point out it's people on low incomes if if i did have to travel to work then yeah that's one for the underground in the morning and then i guess you'd use that for the recommended eight hours switch out another one for the rest of your work shift and then you travel back on the public transport that's a second and then go shopping that's a third and yeah, if you're getting screwed on price gouging that could be 15 euros a day which is more than an hour's salary on the mindest lawn uh, the minimum wage so yeah I think a bit more notice would have been helpful to for people to get their ducks in a row because there is going to be a mad rush uh, over the next couple of days. Friday and Saturday at the supermarket, there'll be a lot of people buying much more than they need because they have concerns about the ability to go shopping in the weeks ahead. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens. Marcus Soda, who is the the minister president of Bavaria, obviously Germany's federalized republic, sixteen states. Not every state is doing this. It's certainly, but and 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 through throughout the whole process of the pandemic, Bavaria has been consistently the strictest with the rules. Which is no, it's like sort of the archetype of Bavaria is if there's a rule, we've got the strictest version of it. Which I mean, again, it's the yeah. I'm not complaining. It's just, especially during a pandemic, let's have some strict rules, you know, because mm. ultimately there's a lot of irresponsibility out there. I'm not saying. We're, 
we need to have the police marching down the street checking on everybody but the reality is if i'm wearing what looks like an fpp2 mask am i gonna get stopped and ultimately the truth is looking like me being a white middle class guy i could wear any mask and no one's gonna stop me it's a for me it just seemed like a pretense to stop anyone you want oh is that an fpp2 mask oh right and, like, and then also how do you know it's not been reused how do you know like there's, there's a lot of confusion and i think there's a lot of criticism when you live in the richest one of the richest states if not mm. the richest state in germany how the hell is it that the government isn't subsidizing this kind of stuff like we do like this is this is the lie that the, the go like government the government in germany tell you or oh, it's like oh we need austerity we need the schwarze null we need balanced budgets and i'm like okay balanced budgets is fine but we're also the richest economy in europe yeah. like we've and bavaria is the richest state in the richest economy like we've got the money we've got the less debt than most of all the other countries around us and we're still going oh you still have to just pay out your own pocket and it just seems it seemed like whenever you have a situation where the administration mm -hmm. is demanding by law that you buy something maybe the people making the law should subsidize that but obviously our politics and the politics between us and Minnesota are um, divergent <laughs> shall we say i mean of course yeah it's all in the uh in the public interest and i i am a big supporter of this and if it allows other shops to open mm -hmm. up uh and to sort of get the economy creaking open and get people back to work i i think it's a fantastic idea and it is the only one that i can really see working at the moment uh, and compared to the issue that's being faced back home in the uk where people are now screaming online mm -hmm. at morrison's the supermarket for daring to say that they would enforce this rule and the police turning around saying they wouldn't like it makes it really easy in the uk to to flex the rules as the government are describing it uh, and yeah, i'm very thankful that uh, that i've got a, a much harsher regime looking after me in these times because yeah it's really important it's it's essential well, I, th I, th I think both both Brit the british and german governments have bolstered up but in entirely different ways um, and I think uh, the catastrophic dealing of the, with the pandemic by the British government is malicious, whereas mm -hmm. I don't think the German government's particularly malicious in, in, in many respects. But the thing that blew my mind was that like, we've had almost a year of the pandemic and, and Morrison's is now saying we're going to enforce the rules. Yeah. And it just like, it speaks to like, it's a weird, there's like a weird aspect of like, it's not American culture because American and British culture, they have the same origin story essentially. But the this sort of my independent choice is, is it seems like a, a big a big factor like oh you can't tell me what to do and there's a british sort of punk anti-authoritarianism that in a lot of ways is admirable but in certainly when you're trying to pull together as a group it's probably not and the idea that like half the people wear masks and half the people don't just seems like a failure of policy as well in germany with these masks and these specialized masks we're asking companies like amazon to prove that they take an interest in the individual welfare of their customers and uh, hey maybe i'm just a pessimist right but i don't think the, tr the trillionaire uh, who the second richest man in the world really gives a flying fuck whether we're healthy or yeah, not come on let's let's give the man some slack he has now dropped in the rankings like let's, let's, let's be nice i have no time for a man who with a click of his fingers could solve like massive social problems and i'm not saying like he's got the perfect remedy you should be doing a hell of a lot more than talking about maybe going to bloody mars it just seems it makes us yeah. really really angry as i'm sure the listeners can tell they didn't come for nick's rant <laughs> <laughs> Städte bauliche Parasiten oder eine Chance für München. This is an article from Süddeutsche Zeitung and it is highlighting the 
the rather large debate, the, the massive discussion going on currently in Munich over planning permission for 255 meter high rise buildings in the middle of the city. This is contentious because Munich for a long time has had a, a law that dictates how high a building can be. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of opposition for this and the article itself is looking in depth about the developer, about the people protesting it, about the site. So, Simon, how do you feel about these uh, these two potential skyscrapers? I grew up in villages, and so skyscrapers were the furthest thing from my imagination. It was always a very much a New York-type thing. And then when I, I spent a lot of time in northern Germany growing up, and then a lot of the places I lived were like army buildings or quickly built things. So, yeah, my attraction to architecture was pretty much non-existent at this point. But then, of course, where I'm from in southeast England, we have a lot of sort of nice Tudor buildings, like wood beams and all that kind of stuff. And so I've definitely sort of fallen more for that kind of architecture. And here down in Bavaria, where, where we live, I live in Nuremberg, um, it's a magical place when it comes to architecture. And there is a Bavarian school of architecture that blends elements of Italian and Austrian and German all together and just creates this really beautiful sort of medieval vibe. And it adds so much value to a city when you're experiencing it, when you can feel the history in the buildings. I grew up spending a lot of time in London, and London has straddled that gap now and is now pushing forward with major architectural projects that are really piercing the skyline and I'm, I'm a big fan of that I have to say like I do like the way London looks now I think it makes it feel more modern more attractive for business uh, and all that kind of stuff uh, but yeah to be honest in Munich it doesn't feel particularly right if, if I lived in Munich I, I imagine I'd be disappointed uh, that there was these sort of monuments being constructed as opposed to more affordable housing rent in Munich is famously high and so I think a lot people in the community would just rather uh, have the space used in a way that allows people to sort of live in the city in a way that's affordable and that doesn't seem like it's going to be the result of this project i'm looking at the picture that they've, they've, that's attached at the top of the article and do you know when you see those images of potential buildings and they have like a computer generated family having a barbecue or something <laughs> you know it's like it's it sort of get, presents this image of like how beautiful it is no word of a lie, listener. Go and if you can find the article, go and look at it. I'll, the link is obviously in the notes. This is seriously one of the worst images I've ever seen <laughs> for like promoting a potential building. Not only do the buildings look architecturally just ugly as sin, right? They're just glass, glass mm. curved buildings. There's no, it's not really that exciting or interesting. And and it just you can see from the image how it would just disfigure. The skyline. You've got Munich, where it's they've been very reserved about how high you can build buildings, and then you just stick two massive 155 meter towers in the middle, and it's just like, what are you? What's the aim here? I know Bavaria is always the arch conservative state. It, 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 I mean, it's not always voted um, CDU, but they've always voted for Merkel's uh, conservative party and th they often are the ones in power so it, it sort of re reflects opinion it's a very sort of traditional catholic conservative state so so i can see there's an element of like modernism and we're trying to be more modern and move forward but it always seems to flow in the most asinine ridiculous ways like oh we need to be more modern let's build these monstrosities and that'll show that we're modern i, I think to come back to the images for a second it's very telling that these skyscrapers are shown sort of behind cloud like you can't you yeah, can't really exactly. see it it's like when bmw launched a new series of cars and all the photos are in like pitch black night like they're telling yeah. you they're not happy with the design so yeah it's, it's, it's it, it doesn't really seem like the most elegant solution 
Well, you, well, this is the thing, isn't it, right? How cloudy is it, is, is it in Bavaria, given that the Bavarian state flag is blue and white diamonds, and the blue represents the infinite blue skies that you see in, in, in Bavaria, especially during the summer. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, I just don't, I don't, I mean, part, politically, I don't trust developers building anything, and that's definitely something to do with my upbringing. But I don't trust developers to build the things that you want, really, not anymore. It, it looks to me like it's somebody's it's somebody's wet dream, isn't it? It's some developers exciting, oh, like, oh, yeah, we're going to modernize Munich by putting these two phallic symbols in the <laughs> middle, you know? You're absolutely right, and this is clarified quite nicely by uh, Matthias Feil, who is head of the Bavarian State Office for Monument Preservation. I think just the fact that there is an Office of Monument Preservation says a lot about the history and culture of Bavaria, but he describes these buildings as investor architecture. Yeah, those two words going together sounds pretty pretty terrifying, and it's something we've seen really be a huge problem in London, especially. Uh, obviously, to live in near the city proper is almost impossible unless you are a millionaire or billionaire and these are just these these projects are all over london now uh, where it's all about making money it's all about capital it's not about providing elegant solutions a lot of the time it's just yeah we can make a shitload of money off this prestige projects right? indeed this uh, this is the other term that this is how they market them in a positive way but investor architecture really seems like a more accurate analysis uh, from her file it's certainly a question they've got in Berlin, right? It's a it's a big issue in Berlin where there's a lot of development. There's a lot of questions about rent, gentrification. Hamburg has had it too. We were talked as we were discussing this topic before. We talked about um, I talk. You mentioned like you've obviously mentioned London, where you've got a bit more experience in, in Newcastle. And this is part to do with why I'm probably slightly allergic to these to these ideas. Is Newcastle suffered really badly, certainly in the the 60s and 70s, from a desire to develop uh, Newcastle, get rid of the slums, and develop it into this. What is it i think one of the councillors called it um the brasilia of the north now if you've seen brasilia <laughs> <Really>? you know <laughs> yeah yeah that's what he wanted to build the brasilia of the north and and basically what what you had was these amazing like some of the most amazing examples of georgian architecture were in newcastle the city library was it was like um if you've seen images of similar style buildings in america new york um we had this massive fronted romanesque column uh, library building and they knocked it down and said oh we'll rebuild it and then they put the parts left them to rot and then they built one of the ugliest buildings and that i've ever seen the city library in newcastle which they then redeveloped about 10 years ago and it's still not great and so the, they built like a central motorway through the city much like munich and fair enough but they also meant they destroyed a lot of famous bits of architecture that that were that had been there for at least 100 years maybe more and so straight away whenever i hear developer an alarm bell just goes off in my head they're not interested in building things that will benefit the population they're really just building buildings to to benefit their their pockets and it's still the case in newcastle today where you get developments that build either student housing a lot of student housing has been built in newcastle and they basically a lot of the residents complain about essentially creating student ghettos like a whole section of the city where only students can afford to live or or have the opportunity to live also building office blocks that no one needs especially now really do we need that is that really what's required maybe some more affordable housing but even when you build affordable housing, they usually build a tower block as well. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a horrible balance that most of these cities are struggling to strike. And yeah, one of the members of CSU state parliament went as far as describing these high-rise buildings as urban parasites. 
which we had in the title of this uh, of this article. And I mean, this is really the problem. When you build a tower, it does sort of leech away uh, a lot of things from the local community. Here in Nuremberg, we have one tall tower here on the edge of the city called the Business Tower, which is about as imaginative as it gets. And it, when you see it, you're just struck by like the mind-boggling ugliness of this thing uh, that has made no attempt to blend in and really sticks out like a sore thumb uh, anytime you do manage to get a view of the city as a whole. You just think, what? why did anyone agree to that? They could have developed the area totally differently and still provided the same services. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad when, when it goes wrong. So we'll see what, uh, what, what happens through the planning phase of this. Well, the, the irony of that building is it's great. It's a great view from the top, specifically because you can't see the building he's standing in. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's there's other skyscrapers around yeah. Germany, isn't there? It's it's not just it's not just Munich that is talked about. There's there's lots of uh, there's lots of tall buildings right around around Germany. There are there are lots and lots of tall buildings. The thirteen tallest buildings in Germany are all in Frankfurt. Uh, the Commerzbank, which is 259 metres tall, uh, which is the tallest building in Germany. We have, of course, the European Central Bank, uh, 185 metres tall in Frankfurt, going down to the Silber Term, which is 12th biggest, uh, 166.3. I haven't included in this list TV towers or uh, radio masts, because there are a couple of those that are taller. Uh, so, for example, the TV tower in Berlin, which, of course, is an iconic part of any sort of panorama you see of the city. Nobody lives in it, uh, it's, so it's not included on this list. It's got a restaurant in the top, though, yeah, the revolving restaurant. But that's, I, I think it's a gimmick as opposed to anything else, really. So. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. I, I'm, being, I'm being strict on this. Fair enough. You, your rules, dude. Thank you. Uh, but basically, in Germany, there are nine cities that have two or more buildings over 100 metres. Uh, at the moment, Munich has six. Uh, which actually puts it really high up the list because yeah, after Frankfurt, it, it's basically it's I think Hamburg and then Munich and but Germany does have of course a very long tradition with building other tall buildings and those are churches, um, and in fact Ulm Minster, which I know uh, Nick has a connection to because it's his wife's neck of the woods, is the tallest church building in the world. Damn right, I've been up that twice. Twice I've walked up that bloody tower. It's massive. 161 and a half metres, which is just... It boggles the mind. Uh, and, and yeah, in fact, Germany in total has 27 churches, which are over 100 metres tall, which really struck me as being a lot. So we've got yeah. Ulm, we've got Cologne, we've got five in Hamburg. So shout out to the city of Hamburg for having that many tall churches. Lübeck has four. Uh, Schwerin, Rostock, Freiburg, Hildesheim, Schleswig, Lüneburg, Dortmund has two, Regensburg, Magdeburg, Strausen has two, Osnabrück, Rainer and Spever. Uh, so yeah, that's, those, those are all the cities in Germany that have 100 metre tall churches. You are welcome. Well, oh well, yeah, I mean that's, that's, that's all I need to know, isn't it? I can, I can leave happy. A close shave. German hairdressers criticise footballers over lockdown haircuts. Uh, so, we spoke about this last week, uh, that there were hairdressers who were facing €5,000 fines uh, for travelling to people's homes to do private hairdressing. Uh, and it turns out that uh, it's not just us that care about this, it's also uh, the German Hairdressing Union, who have the acronym ZVFZVF. And they've written an open letter to the German Football Association, the DFB, here in Germany, 
uh, claiming that certain haircuts sported by footballers can only have been done by professionally trained hairdressers with professional equipment. Uh, so that would mean that people are liable for these €5,000 fines. Uh, so, Nick, uh, which footballer do you think has the best haircut? Are there any people out there who are aspiring to look like? Well, I, I watched I watched the highlights of the Kiel-Bayern-Munich uh, game yesterday. In and the there cup. Was a, yeah. yeah, in the cup. And um, hooray for Kiel because Bayern-Munich got dumped out, which is indeed. Not- very few people will be shedding tears over given the the dislike of Bayern. Sane's hair was proper delightful. It was it's it's like it's got a little bit of the sideshow bobs <laughs> about it, and it's a, it's it's sort of like slightly dreaded. It's hair that I could only dream of. That's the kind of hair that I'd go for. Yeah, it's it's a buoyant bob. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of, of his hair. It's, it's nice, pretty good, and we're not going in the direction of Kevin Campbell. Um, who sometimes looks like he's just been straight from 1995 uh, and a big old bottle of peroxide. Oh, I do like I do like a really bad footballer's haircut. There's something to be appreciated. Although I'm not entirely convinced that they should be breaking lockdown in order to get haircuts. Is that basically what they're saying then? They're saying that footballers yeah. are breaking lockdown because they're getting haircuts and they're having hairdressers basically, come yeah, to them. Exactly. So obviously you can see these people once a week uh, on TV playing in the game and you can identify if they've had a fresh cut that week. Now, of course, a, a lot of these people do have entourages that might include uh, a professional hairstylist that maybe lives in their house with them as part of a bubble. It's, it's not inconceivable. Uh, and maybe some of their partners are, are trained professional hairstylists. But of course, uh, the leader of the uh, of the union here has said that he cannot believe that 50% of footballers have partners or family who are professional hairstylists. And that does seem like a pretty fair estimate that it can't be 50%. Um, there is an example here of Freiburg, uh, Vincenzo Grifo. His partner, Vanessa, is indeed a trained hairdresser. Uh, so yeah, he's he's exempt from these, uh, from these critical looks. By the letter of the law, right? He can interming- he can mingle with his football with his teammates because they're all in some sort of team bubble, right? So couldn't his teammates go to his house to get a haircut from his missus? I'm assuming that would be a possibility. I don't know if it goes against the spirit of the rules or if then what would be better is if they were taken on as an employee of the team as part of the backroom staff, so physios, coaches, and cosmetologists, and whatever else they need. But I mean, yeah, there is a big fine that can come their ways. Of course, there have been lots of examples of footballers breaking these rules. We've had it here in, in Germany with Borussia Dortmund, Englishman Jaden Sancho uh, and Manuel Akanji uh, were fined 10,000 euros showing uh, haircuts being done at home with social media posts um, and people see it my, my, the love of uh, my football life is Tottenham Hotspur and we just had all our Argentinian players all spent Christmas together and posted it online with sharing dinner it's like that's yeah that's not allowed and thank you for showing us <laughs> that you've done this um, but yeah it's, it's pretty stupid it goes to show that there are rules for some that don't always apply to others well, footballers do exist in a quite rarefied air, don't they? they they're not um, they're not subject to a lot of a lot of the issues, obviously because of their wealth. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not like their oh, their lives are easy. I think that's another bad trope that we find, where like being paid hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of of euros a week means that you have no emotions or that you're not a human <laughs> being. 
but I, I think there's an element of on the one side they're the only ones who are still having to go to work right they're the, they're almost like it's certainly in Britain they're sort of seen as the great distraction the football is continuing and mm-hmm. it's almost to the point where everything can stay open ex- everything has to stay closed sorry except the football has to keep going and keep everyone entertained like if they'd cancelled football during christmas imagine i can only imagine what the outcry would have been from people football football must continue is the sort of motto in britain i mean naturally i i love football and so i'm i'm really happy that the premier league is going on it's it's it does make a difference on my the, my happiness levels and my mental health for sure but i do find it absolutely staggering that we've had international friendlies uh, during the COVID period where you have like England going to Denmark and playing in a game. It's just the most ludicrous Insane. suggestion possible. Other sports are discussing possibilities. Of course, all sport wants to remain open. Um, these footballers, as you say, are often targeted um, because it's easy to go, yeah, look at this dickhead millionaire who I'm actually very, very jealous of. Um, he's breaking the rules. But there is there are some dickhead millionaires, you know. There are people who take who take advantage. We we had the examples um about a month ago of uh, footballers who've broke broke the speed limit and have been fined massive amounts of money. And it does smack of a, a one rule for 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 you, one rule for us mentality, if not a reality. I do think they're often subject to a lot more a lot more abuse because of the the nature of their position and the partisan nature of of sort of supporting a football team. But if I think of my team, Newcastle United. If if they stopped playing football, no one would bloody notice, man. Honestly. Anyway, like less of that. That this isn't a football podcast. But they had an outbreak of COVID within their team, and there's been some quite harrowing stories from four of the players who still haven't really recovered. They still have a lot of issues, and it's like, well, that's the danger, right? It's like the danger isn't, and it's the same danger that we all face. The danger isn't necessarily that you get it. It's uh, or you would be killed by it. It's the danger of what happens if you're a healthy person who su- who gets COVID and suddenly uh, you've now only got 70% or may- possibly less of your lung capacity. You're uh, constantly sick. People are talking about long COVID. There's lots of different impacts we just don't know about. And I think really that's that's for me more than... Like the haircut thing is is the is the, the hook, right? But the truth is it's, it's about solidarity. And, and if we all do the same thing and we all follow the processes and we don't all get sidetracked by by idiotic conspiracy theories then then we may come out of this in a better place but it does depend on everyone doing and following the rules this is an article from the frankfurt allgemein and it is covering the topic of the severe reduction of bakeries around germany the statistic it gives in the article is there was roughly 55,000 bakeries in 1955 and now we're sort of down to 10,000 and so there's this fear that that bakery bakeries are, are slowly dying off but what the article points out is that there's actually a new culture of bakeries pushing through and that the death of the bakery is perhaps uh, overreported when you look at the statistics so Simon where do you buy your bread yeah i normally get my bread from my local bakery but my local bakery is part of a chain uh, they've recently updated their style, so they've gone from the back Buddha to the back Stuber. Uh, they've entered a new colorway system. It's now like mahogany's and orange, oh, really? as opposed to whites and blues before. Um, 
but yeah it all comes in frozen they put it in the ovens and you get it fresh there but it's nothing like what these sort of artisanal bakeries let, let's be a bit more critical hipster bakeries are offering there is nothing handmade apart from the sandwiches i think they're hand put together but apart from that everything's mm. processed bread of course that means it's quite cheap so if i want to buy just a normal brötchen a normal bread roll a semel uh it's about 30 cents mm -hmm. uh for a plain white so yeah i guess that's cheaper than it would be in some of these places but yeah if i want to not buy from them i have two other options one is a conditorai which we think we're happy with the translation of, of a confectioners so it's they more focus on like handmade cakes and it's, it's definitely high level if i wanted a fancy birthday cake i'd go to a conditorai or i walk a little bit further and go to uh, a beck uh, debeck is I, I assume the largest chain of bakeries slash cafes in germany so yeah i don't really have sort of local handmade alternative mm. and yeah i don't buy my bread at the supermarket because i've always found it to be not fantastic quality but again i know we're going to upset people just by talking about this because as two englishmen we come from arguably well what germans would argue is the worst bread culture in the world no i think they save they save that insult for america oh, this right? is true this is true oh, let's say europe then um and yeah i mean we grew up with like sliced loaves of hovis or king's mill mm -hmm. uh these kinds of processed high sugar high salt long lasting loaves of bread and there is nothing like that at my local bakery uh, what about you, Nick? Is, is your wife opinionated? Is your, does your family have a policy on the kinds of bread uh, appropriate? I shall be approaching this topic with uh, the utmost care. When my wife used to come and visit us in um, the visit us, visit me. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, when my wife would come and visit me when, when I was still living in England, uh, she would only have two real major requests, and it was buy some good, good. Uh, marmalade or jam and get like some good bread and for i think four years running uh, i failed on both <laughs> accounts uh, the bread was never and i would buy like you go into a supermarket and you'd find the most premium bread and you buy it and i'd be like yeah this is the one and you should look at it and it, with disdain and I'd be like, oh, but, but that's the two pound bread like what's wrong with it and I'd never really understood it until I came to Germany and then you see the bread culture here. And actually, I was a bit surprised by the article because my feeling was that, at least in our area in Bavaria, in our area in Bavaria, at least where we live in Bavaria, that there was a, a, a feeling that quality trumped everything else. Quality was really what people were looking for. And to be perfectly mm. honest, even the, the sort of lowest level, lowest grade bread product that you can buy in a supermarket is on par if not better than what you would probably find of the same standard in the uk so quality is quite is still high and so maybe that's my problem is i don't actually understand what quality bread is but like i'm not i'm not new we've been here for 10 years i've tried all the mm -hmm. many different types of bread that i've tried um in every bakery the quality is always good but i was surprised to find out that a lot of people are still advocating for cheaper bread but i think that's possibly because people can't can't afford expensive bread rolls two pounds for a, a two euro sorry for a, a bread roll or so i think there's a there's a social aspect to this but i've always found the quality of bread that you find in supermarkets is usually quite high often because there is a bakery an independent bakery on site in some supermarkets certainly around my neck of the woods you're absolutely right i should have stipulated that i i just meant the sort of plastic wrapped mass-produced mm -hmm like not freshly baked in-house anything that's baked in-house or at least warmed up in-house 
I, I would be okay with. But yeah, th there are lots of brands. I mean, what I certainly notice is that bread is just far more complex. There's far more to it in the German culture. I think if you ask English mm -hmm. people, what bread do you want? The answer is going to be like white or whole grain. And it's like, those are the two schools of thought. Whereas here you have all these dark breads, all these heavy breads, all these breads that for me are closer to a Rivita than what I grew up with. And mm -hmm. I, I clearly don't have the palate uh, for these breads. They, they feel heavy and difficult. Uh, for me to to navigate and to eat, uh, so I'm I'm a sucker for a fluffy, a fluffy loaf. Oh, you're gonna get you're gonna get the complaints, aren't you? I am indeed. Well, the, 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 what we would call bread in the UK is referred to in Germany as toast, and it's toast is like an insult almost. But I I I, I, I say I spent a lot of time in northern Germany where this toast uh, exists, uh, and it is a big deal, and a lot of people would have. It's like it's a weird size, it's a weird shape, but it's also some of them are like pre-buttered. So you put them into your toaster, put it in, and then it comes out warm. But it's nothing like what what I consider English bread. Uh, it's sort of a a long-lasting version that you could store for for weeks or months without it going mouldy. So I will stand up for the, for the good name of English uh, breads. It's not quite as bad as the toast. Uh, comparison in the German language. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? The the sort of the growth in Britain of, and it's one of the things that I really dislike about about British the British market for 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 bread at least is there was there's been a massive growth in the last ten years of artisanal bakeries and these sort of oh we we make these very cultured and very complex breads that are using ancient grains or like. And we charge you five euros for a loaf of bread and it's really just bread for people who can afford it and the thing that that was was clear to me when i first came to germany is you don't you don't have artisanal bakeries you just have bakeries because most bakeries produce a high quality product that most people um, are happy to pay for even if it's a little bit more expensive and there was a sense that quality was important whereas in britain it was like you, if you can't afford it you can't you're not going to get a decent thing you're just going to get this this shit that we'll offer you but if you've got a bit of money you can come to our artisanal bakery where we're we're measuring things with test tubes and we've all got love lovely beards and tight t-shirts well that says it is attached to gimmick uh in these yeah. in these markets and as you say in germany it's, you might see some advertising for some special really cool bread that they mm -hmm. developed but it's not going to be the personality of the shop whereas as you say in a in a cool bakers in the uk there's going to be levels and layers of cool and you're going to pay for every single part of that and yeah it's not value for money but it's a way to demonstrate to your neighbors that you are fancy well yeah exactly it's it's a little bit of that but also it's a bit of like it's it's sort of hobbyism isn't it because baking mm. at home's become not just before, not just during lockdown i think it's increased during lockdown but before that the things like the great british bake-off this tv mm. show competitive baking show you have in the uk which is like a phenom and there's a german version now there's versions all around the the world have sold this this phenomenal uh tv show that's it's so big and people like i remember the first time someone said uh oh um i said i baked a loaf of bread and he was like what's the crumb like and I was like, what? <laughs> and what they meant was like the the consistency of the loaf. And I was just like, oh God, there's a whole lexicon of like 
mm. weirdness that we need to follow. But what, what, what was interesting about this article is that what they're saying is the death of the bakeries in Germany is overblown because there's this growth of artisanal bakeries in Germany. And that slightly broke my brain because I'm like, what is the difference between going to a high-quality bakery? I've got several around the corner. There's a couple of independents. And, and the thing about independent bakeries, you have to get up at 7 if you want to get bread from an independent bakery, mm. a good one, because often they'll close at 10 because they've just sold everything. Uh, because yeah. the people who know, they know. And I've been lived in places where the bakery was phenomenal, but if you got there a minute after 8 o'clock, you were getting the the dregs. Hmm. And given that there's like 3,000 different types of bread, it's kind of depressing to discover the only bread available is a white bread roll. And you're like, come on. <laughs> like, but yeah, have you have you seen any of these art- artisanal bakeries popping up around, around Nimble? I can't say I've noticed any here, but obviously I, I spent three years in Portland, Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest in America, and they are like the staple bakery. Like most bakeries are hipster. And so we have one around the corner from us. It was called the the Tea Tree Cafe, um, and they did some exquisite breads. But it it was it it was a, a robbery every time I went in there. I'd like buy. Oh, they did this salted loaf that was just astonishing, but it was like five dollars, um, and you get like two good sandwiches out of it. Um, and yeah, I'm I've got too much Yorkshire blood in me. Uh, to allow me to give out that kind of cash for bread um i mean if if one of these does pop up i mean i live near uh johannes which is the, the sort of like the cool neighborhood uh the hipster type mm-hmm. so i guess there probably is one near me but i haven't gone out for many walks in johannes under lockdown so maybe i need to get on the old google maps uh and find out uh what's open there's there's one there's one in the center of, of augsburg that that i walk past quite often and it's interesting because I hadn't really, I'd clocked it. It was, it was definitely an artisanal bakery because it has all the tropes. It has the tight t-shirt wearing bearded, bearded folk, lots of tattoos, and like I, I love that. I love that sort of aesthetic. So it, I'm not complaining, but it, it's definitely a, like a hipster aesthetic. And I'd seen that, but I hadn't clocked what they were doing until I read the article. Because what it points out is a lot of these bakeries do the same thing. They bake in an open space. So you can see the bread baking, which draws customers in. Mm-hmm. Um, what I always love in a German article is when there's like a surprised paragraph about how someone's using social media in, a, in, in an innovative way. And it's like, all right, are you, you're, you're fully 20 years behind. All right, okay. There's a line in here where it's like, um, uh, the Munich bread maker uh, Julius Brandner presents his individual baked goods on Instagram with a short text. And it's like, it's like, it's like the journalist. Pioneering. Is, it just, it's, it's like the journalist has just gone like, oh, I didn't realise you could, I didn't realise you could use this image image uh, based website to to make images <laughs> that you could sell to people. <laughs> like it's, it just seems like they're, they're sort of confused by by the idea that you might use social media but again it's change isn't always bad but i think um like with the examples of the tower blocks and the skyscrapers anything that looks suspiciously like they're adopting a british way of doing something i'm almost straight away against because nine times out of ten it just opens the door to people taking the piss just like building Mm. one skyscraper in munich opens the door to loads of skyscrapers like one artisanal bakery just opens the door to like people (laughs) just going right this is the way and then you know what happens it knocks down the line so you go to your bakery that is a chain and suddenly they're all they've all got tattoos and they're i mean it's bad enough in debec where they have the brot sommelier right and and as soon as i saw that i almost spat my 
pretzel across <laughs> the room because I was like, really? Do, are, we, are we doing this? We're going to have a special class where someone tells us about how to sniff bread effectively. But if you, if people will pay for it, then they'll, they'll do it. Fair enough. If that's what people want to do, more power to you. But at the same time, I'm always a little bit dicey about is this is this something that's just going to become overly commercialized and it's going to knock on effect down the way like bubble tea or whatever all of these sort of fads well i mean obviously tattoo artists have struggled through lockdown so i mean if there are more tattoos required i guess that's a positive thing for the for the knockdown economy so i mean what one yeah, final yeah. question on this nick i guess is if you had to have a tattoo of a baked good what would you go for <laughs> Right, i've got one of my very one of my friends I've, I've reconnected with you might never hear this but you can look it up he has a tattoo of a greg's pasty on his arm <laughs> and it is i'm i'm only i'm rarely jealous of someone else's tattoos and when he saw when i saw that i was like i i want it i want that tattoo that's the baked product i would go for i wouldn't go for a, a loaf of bread but definitely some kind of sausage roll there's an opportunity here any bakers out there any hipster bakers looking for an english language podcast to become partnered with all we need is a, a tattoo artist in a couple of hours nick's got plenty of free skin we'll give him a steak bay tattoo are you volunteering i have me? I'll, I'll get a dry and vegler or something like I, i'm happy to sit with you uh, but we'll 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 represent your company by eating baked goods all day long yeah i think i think within reason <laughs> i'm just gonna caveat it just in case we get a quick dm on twitter and it's like yeah you can tattoo this uh bow and broad on your arm no dad i'm already feeling oh, uncomfortable i am excited <laughs> i just i wish we were further down the road with more baker fans so i knew this was going to work uh but yeah i need to have a, a long conversation with my wife <laughs> <laughs> programmer who has two guesses left to access a 175 million pound bitcoin wallet uh, this is an article from the guardian it has been covered everywhere every newspaper is led with the story because it is fucking terrifying so this is uh stefan thomas uh, who is a German-born, that's why we're, we're talking about it, but he is a, a German-born San Francisco-based computer programmer. And a decade ago, uh, he was given 7,002 bitcoins as a reward for making a video uh, explaining how cryptocurrency works. Um, today, that is worth $240 million. At the time, it was two to six dollars per coin. Now it's thirty-four thousand dollars. So this poor, poor man <laughs> spent the last m few months brainstorming as what this could possibly be, what the password could be. And he says, "I would just lay in bed and think about it. Then I would go to the computer with some new strategy, and it wouldn't work, and I would be desperate again." I, I just can't imagine a more feeling of pure self-hatred. Than knowing that you're the creator <laughs> of this catastrophic failure like 240 million dollars and all you got to do is remember your password uh yeah how do you feel about this when you read it nick you sent me the message with this article and the first response was this this article gives me vertigo and that's exactly how <laughs> i feel i just feel like i'm on a really tall building do you know if it was me honestly if it was me i wouldn't i wouldn't i'd just i'd give up i'd give up with two guesses left because I don't think I don't think I could live with myself if I if I just like the the idea that you could still access it one day 
Like you might be sitting in the bath and you go, bang, oh, I've remembered what the password is. That's fine. <laughs> but imagine you've done that after you've after you've en- input the password. Oh, it just it makes me feel like I felt so bad for this guy. It just makes me feel really uncomfortable. It's, it's a terrifying proposition. It really is. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's not without hope. Uh, he still has two more guesses. So I guess he could roll the dice on that. Uh, but it also turns out he's received some interesting offers. Uh, one from a man called Alex Stamos, who is an internet security expert at Stanford Internet Observatory. And he said he could crack the password within six months, um, which sounds great. But uh, he's requesting 10% uh, of the that's a, That's, yeah. That way, I would I would pay that if he's so convinced I'd be like fuck yeah man yeah. like you get that's ten percent that's worth ten percent I still get ninety percent yeah of my bitcoins um, oh jeez like I would have already called him <laughs> I'd be like please help me uh, sign the contract get it done now what's really interesting is that this guy is far from being alone um, there's a cryptocurrency data firm called Chain Analysis and they estimate about twenty percent of the existing 18.5 million bitcoins appear to be lost or stranded in inaccessible wallets. So 20% of this global phenomenon is lost or locked uh, and will never be unlocked uh, because these wallets are designed to self-encrypt. If you get 10 wrong, it just locks itself and it can never be unlocked. Yeah, I mean, there there are some wonderful stories about people doing this. There was a drug dealer, I think, didn't he hide it in his fishing pole or something? He hid his... his... Indeed. <laughs> he had to go to the yeah. tip. Uh, so yeah, a drug dealer had, I think it was on a USB, he had his, his wallet, I think a couple of million euros worth of laundered, I mean, it's laundered when it's Bitcoin, uh, laundered money, and he hid it in his fishing equipment, which was then thrown away in a move, I believe. And then, yeah, he went to try and find it, and it was, it was lost forever. He lost two million euros, I think. Uh, there's a story here of a Welsh IT worker, James Howells, who threw out a hard drive containing the keys to seven and a half thousand bitcoins. Um, that's, uh, yeah, uh, at the time it was worth about four million quid. Now it's 250 million. Of course, these these prices could have dropped in the last hour that we've been recording uh, because Bitcoin is fluctuating pretty dramatically in the last few days, weeks and months. So, I mean, yeah, this is the next logical step, I guess. Uh, Nick, would you invest in Bitcoins? If I had a time machine, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't see the point of doing it now, but, like, I think if I'd if it was 2015, I might I might have, yeah, taken the opportunity. But, I mean, it, it seems so inaccessible when, when it first started. Like, the, you had to mine them, didn't you? You had to have a system that you could mine Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you know, it's like asking me, how many Porsches do you want to buy? And I'm like... Well, I'd like to have one, but I can't afford one. So, like, it's all hypothetical. So, I don't have the equipment or the ability or the access to these things. What about you? Would you? Uh, I don't. Know. I, I've thought about it multiple times of just like but investing a little bit because you do see these these massive growth moments where you can go from a small amount of money to a very considerable amount in no time whatsoever. Uh, but I've never never pulled the trigger on it because I am just so fearful of it all just completely collapsing. And then you're left with absolute zero. Uh, I think I'd hate myself a bit too much uh, on the back end of that. Now, of course, Bitcoin is just one it's one brand as part of a wide variety of cryptocurrency. So you've not said you're that interested in Bitcoin, but let me make some alternate suggestions for you. Uh, so <laughs> would you be interested in the Venezuelan Petro? 
there's something about the idea of it being Venezuelan that suggests that it might not be exactly like there's a lot of political instability right so i'm how not... fucking dare you <laughs> this this is this is the petrol currency announced by the venezuelan president himself nicolas maduro and if there's one thing i know about nicolas maduro is he is a man of his word <laughs> i think he's got a he's got an understatement to say he's got a bit of a checkered past shall we say yeah weren't they trying to overthrow him about a year ago before the pandemic yeah he he sort of set the uh the way forward for what trump uh did basically he lost his election and then rallied his uh his supporters and uh put a coup on himself uh basically and yeah and it's still ongoing he's not recognized by multiple nations as the as the democratically elected leader of venezuela uh so yeah it's, it's problematic okay yeah, so yeah, th- you don't want the venezuelan petro okay. that's fine how about the trump coin um can I stick it up Trump's ass? Is that allowed? Is that part of the <laughs> it's deal? It's not part of the deal. They say they are. their plan is to integrate itself into the agenda of Donald Trump. Um, so I don't... What does that mean? What the fuck does that mean? I think that means they're going to spend it on guns, hookers and blow. Um, yeah, yeah. They're going to spend it funding the Ku Klux Klan and the SS, right? They, yeah, they, they the... put it differently. They say aid and funding projects domestically and worldwide, including infrastructure, veterans, and securing the border. Um, yeah. If if there's if there's one if there's one thing that comes out of the last four years is that Trump is no longer able to put his name on anything, and people will buy it, like Trump stakes. Trump was it Trump Champagne Trump University yeah. like I hope I hope his brand is so tarnished that the only people who are going to buy it are MAGA heart wearing fucking idiots. I mean, this is the one nice thing. This is a Trump product that isn't anything to do with him. Like this, just these are just Trump supporters that have taken advantage. Or oh well, I definitely definitely trolls. not fucking investing in it. it. I wasn't before, but I've really hundred percent locked in but concrete Nick, they say buy trump coins today and help your nation community and citizens finally realize their true potential you, you don't want to support that okay obviously you are a massive communist what you need <laughs> is putin coin and putin classic you have choices in russia jesus christ are you just trying to find the most heinous currencies that i can choose um yes <laughs> no is probably the sh- it's probably the short answer to that one is not to offend our, our Russian listeners, if we have it, um, I have a, again. I have a feeling that in investing in Putin coins, is it is it run by no. Putin? Or is it... <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it, it could be some shady side project that he's hustling with his friends, I, I understand the reticence. And Putin coin doesn't do much, but let me tell you about Putin Classic because they offer a fantastic opportunity. Is that the original recipe, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe. But what you're able to do is collect a digital souvenir. Mm. And this digital souvenir, if you buy five Putin coins, you get a limited edition figurine of shirtless Putin on a horse. Like, I do like tchotchkes and, like, honest-to-God useless bits of rubbish, so I am actually tempted because, <laughs> like, like, that's something... Hey, you know, you can tell the grandkids about. They'll be like, "Granddad, why do you have a half-naked man on a horse in the cabinet?" Ah, let me tell you a tale of Vladimir Putin. No, um, oh, I lost all my money in rubles. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is why we live in a shack. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah, I still, still, I'm not really, I'm not really into okay, into okay, the idea. Fair of enough. Now, I do have one that is actually sensible next, and that is pot coin. Um, and Potcoin is designed to provide a decentralized banking infrastructure for the legal cannabis industry. 
And this is actually a really good idea uh, because one of the issues uh, faced by the legal cannabis industry in America, um, of course, multiple states now have legal uh, medicinal and recreational cannabis, but federally it's still a, a controlled substance. So you're not allowed to get banking services because you are running an illegal business. And so all of these companies, I mean, Portland, Oregon is a bit of a cannabis haven. It's all cash only. You can't pay with the card. Or if you could, it was done as a charitable contribution to avoid this. And all these businesses have to pay their federal taxes and state taxes in cash because they're not able to get banking services. So Potcoin does navigate some issues for this industry uh so yeah if you do like living the 420 lifestyle you can support your uh your your supplier by investing in potcoin i'm 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 pro legalization and i i I, given my political rants over the last few weeks i doubt (laughs) anyone's surprised by that but i do i don't buy into the like 420 lifestyle it's not really for me you know i like the idea i think it solves it solves a significant problem that is faced by these companies but i'm not i haven't got a black light i definitely don't have any posters of bob marley on the wall um it's not really it's not really my bag but yeah at least that sounds considerably more sensible than the putin bucks or whatever the, the the trump dollar or whatever it is that you were trying to sell me okay i get it you're not you're not that interested in political investments. I, I like the idea that, that, that cryptocurrency does put a lot of power back into the, the hands of, of people. It just It's one of those things where, well, first and foremost, where we live in Germany, it's going to be a long, long, long time before I am able to go to a shop and buy anything with a Bitcoin. So for me, it's just unrealistic, or, or any cryptocurrency. But I like I do like the social element of of, of cryptocurrencies that the, it, it gives freedom back to to people. It is nice. I mean, the only I'm going to balance this going back to the article where, where Thomas, who mm-hmm. who's locked out, he actually said this whole idea of being your own bank. Let me put it this way: mm-hmm. Do you make your own shoes? Uh, the reason we have banks is we don't want to deal with the things that banks do. So I mean, mm-hmm. of course, there are massive massive risks. These are not federally mm-hmm. uh, supported. So if you lose all your money in a Bitcoin or cyber cryptocurrency, you are screwed. There are no supports there whatsoever. Okay, I have one final one, and it's my absolute favorite. I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna do a voiceover for this because this is just a magnificent quote. Do I need to get some inspiring music? I, I think, yeah, it's some, some heavy sailor drum beats, like something nautical would be good. That would fit nicely. Maybe a storm. <clears throat> As the equinox approaches, we begin the ritual. Four weeks and five days long, it builds until Cthulhu awakens, and one worshipper is rewarded greatly. During the last five days, the Thanarok Shag, or Promise of Dreamland, the ritual reaches final pitch, and the daily special blocks are highly increased. Finally, Cthulhu will return, after the offering has paid tribute to the Great Old One, and he will bestow a bounty deserving of him upon one lucky worshipper. All hail Cthulhu. This is Cthulhu Offerings, and this is a cyber, uh, a, a cryptocurrency religion. Uh, so basically, you buy into <laughs> Cthulhu <laughs> Offerings. Cthulhu dollars. <laughs> on the chance that you can be chosen by Cthulhu and you'll be you'll receive a payout 
so this is basically <laughs> this is American evangelical Christian seed <laughs> <laughs> culture born into Cthulhu, uh, which I think is just magnificent. Honestly, imagine if you could go back in time and you tell HP HP Lovecraft that, like, I know you're writing these sort of semi-interesting novels that are getting some level of reception from 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 audiences, but by the year 2021, <laughs> you'll you'll have your own bloody currency, mate. Uh, TV shows, currencies. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if all of them, that's the one I'm more like. Most of course, it to is. Of course, in. it is. There's a reason I put it last. Yeah, easily, like, yeah. Like I'm not going to disrespect the great old ones by not investing in uh, in, in science science fiction based currencies. Come on, I think, I think yep. if there's anything we can take from this, it's fuck Bitcoin. Hail Cthulhu! Hey Cthulhu! <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you for listening to Decades from Home. Uh, this is the exciting bit at the end of the podcast where I thank you so much for listening and say how wonderful you are as listeners and of course you are beautiful and wonderful and hey your hair looks nice today again we're on episode seven so fairly new podcast we uh, love the feedback keep keep that coming in don't forget to rate the podcast on itunes really helps us we're getting a lot of lovely messages from people saying how much they're enjoying it keep that coming because we we have very small egos that need to be nurtured if you have any questions or you've got any comments or you you want to stroke our egos even further uh, you can get simon on at decades from home you get me at 40% German. Of course, we have the website, uh, 40%german.com, which is, we're filling with with interesting articles every week. Uh, So take a look at that. And uh, again, we have the the email, 40%german at gmail.com, if you have any other ideas or uh, general feedback that you want to send us. So that's us this week, and we look forward to speaking to you next time. See ya.